typical leadership training, which really isn't training, it's it's just entertainment. You know, if you have a speaker come in and he leaves, that message leaves with him, and usually what, you know, you might as well have a guy come in and tell you know, jokes, and, and which is all good. I mean, it's great entertainment or motivational stuff, but it's not a system, and, and I, I relate it back to if I'm coaching an offensive football team, uh, I don't just put in plays, you, you put in the system. Welcome back to another episode of the Underdog Podcast, where adverse moments become building blocks for the future. And knowledge nuggets aren't something you eat, but something you learn. As always, you can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. So be sure to subscribe and leave a comment. And with that said, let's get after it. Today we have the honor to welcome, in my opinion, the greatest college football coach of my lifetime, Urban Meyer. Welcome to the UDP. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Well, we want to start off and provide our listeners with an above-the-line leadership coaching session from you. See what you did there. He's plugging your book already. Yes, I did, Black. <laughs> I did read his book, Above the Line, and this old QB here. Uh, I was back in the lab watching film of coaches' pregame speeches, practice meetings, and interviews. With that said, there isn't too many, if any, leaders I want to hear from on the current E plus R equals O situation with the global pandemic. The event is global pandemic, COVID-19, and we want to know what our response to get the desirable outcome for the current state. With that said, I would like for you to imagine the whole world is in front of you on one knee like your teams of the past. And what would you say to them right now, coach? Well, uh, thanks for having me. And, and uh, E plus R equals O is a, a friend of mine, Tim Kite, a leadership consultant for 30 plus years. There's a guy that I met about seven, eight years ago in Columbus. And I've always been a a student of leadership, of leadership training. I can't tell you that uh, I worked very hard at it, but I was one of those guys that got caught up in quotes and articles and speakers and, you know, the typical leadership training, which really isn't training. It's, it's just entertainment. You know, if you have a speaker come in and he leaves, that message leaves with them. And usually what, you know, you might as well have a guy come in and tell you know jokes and, and which is all good. I mean, it's great entertainment or motivational stuff, but it's not a system, and, and I, I relate it back to if, if I'm coaching an offensive football team, uh, I don't just put in plays. You, you put in a system. And so we put in a very detailed system. I'm so proud of it. It started uh, – I've been teaching leadership for 20 years or for 17 as a head coach, and I would have people come in. I'd read books. I'm a big fan of John Wooden and Bill Walsh. That was my early time. And then uh, a lot of Navy SEAL training uh, all the way up until – I got a hold of this Tim Kite uh, friend of mine. And, and so our factor, what we did, uh, we, we, we began a systematic approach to teaching leadership. And there's two components. One is our factor, and the second is brotherhood of trust. Those are two, to me, those are the foundation of leadership. Is teaching people how to respond. And number two is getting the people, especially in this era, getting people to trust you. Because unless, unless they trust you, there's no shot. Right. Uh, you can't lead a you can't lead people out of a room, you know. Back in the old day, when I was a young person, older, you know, your coaches or teachers or parents said, "Do this," and you did it. Uh, didn't question it. You did it because you, you got smacked around or something. If you didn't, <laughs> getting smacked around now doesn't happen. And so you have to get people to trust you. So let's just talk about that. So uh, we've been dealt a serious E, about as serious E, maybe the second most serious E that I've been to in my lifetime was 9-11 I still think about that day I was coaching at Bowling Green when those planes hit that building and uh I, I still I was coaching the team I had to get it to it was a, a 
early in the week and I had to get them ready to play South Carolina. I had to make a decision where we we're going to get on a plane and, you know, all these families counted on me. So that was a very significant E event. E is an event. And then E plus R, R is the response to the event. And then equals outcome. And you can't always control the outcome, but you certainly can impact the outcome with how you respond. So here we are. We're, uh, we're the greatest country in the history of the planet. We, uh, regardless of Republican, Democrat, liberal or conservative, you have incredible leaders. I just, I, I can't stand the dysfunction right now of the bickering back and forth. However, when you start looking at uh, Pompeo, you start looking at uh, the medical people that are, are helping with some of these decisions. I can't imagine anyone better in this world than what we have. And uh, I get very defensive when I hear people say negative things about our country because I love our country and I trust our country. I know we'll rebound. We rebounded from 9-11 stronger. Uh, we had, you know, all the TSA and airport stuff that everybody complained about. And that's just part of life now. I know we'll come out of this thing stronger. So let's just a quick review of our factor is the first thing you do when you're hit with an E, which this is a big time E, you press pause. And why do you press pause? Because you have to gain clarity of the situation. What is this? What are we doing? You know, the most immediate thing is health and well-being of yourself, your family, and then others. And so press pause. What do you do? Well, you follow the experts. There's people that have been medical training their entire lifetimes telling us what to do. Do it. Don't negotiate. Don't uh, compromise. You do it. So you press pause, gain clarity. Um, then you uh, get your mind right is number two. And get your mind right is, okay, now, what, what, what kind of responses are available here? One is follow the rules, do what you're supposed to do, and be a good citizen of our country. Be a good friend, good father, good family member. That means you take care of your peoples. Uh, that's the that's getting your mind right. The other thing is be a fool and and uh, complain and go do bad things. That means be you know break the break the uh, uh, the, the rules in place about uh, social distancing, washing your hands, not in, you know impacting others. And obviously, that's not a very good response. That's that's a below the line response, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then the last thing is step up. You step up, man up, and do the right thing. What's doing the right thing? I just told you, you know, do it. You know, I'm not qualified to make any decisions whatsoever about this. I trust our country. I trust our leaders of our country, and I'm going to listen. And our family is doing the same thing. So that's the three-step process for our factor. You know, imagine being that 17, 18, 19-year-old that you go out and drink too much. You go to your car. There's your keys in your hand. You're hit with a knee. Do I really... What's my response now? Do I get in that car and turn on the engine? It could be horrific when it happened. The right thing to do is flip your keys to your friends if they were not drinking or put them in your pocket, get an Uber and go home. Right. So that's all the teaching. That's the R factor training that's been going on and continues at Ohio State to this day. No, I think that <clears throat> perfectly well said. I mean, I, I, that was something I thought was maybe a little bit different. I know you get a lot of, obviously, interviews and different things. And um, after reading the book, I just really – you know, I actually incorporated this past week to our, our staff. Uh, we have about a hundred employees and, and I just said, guys, here, how we respond to this event in our current state, we're in the employment business and we're have essential workers out to work. How, how we, you know, respond is going to be how the outcome. And right now people need to eat, you know, they need the medical supplies and they need everything um, that's essential. So I, I went through the E um, plus R equals O. It was super helpful, something I hadn't uh, discussed before and, and something uh, really appreciated taking from your book and trying to stay above the line as well. 
Yeah, the second part of it is the what you just said, above the line, below the line. And above the line decisions are very hard. You know, they're very, uh, we're, we're broken people. You know, I, I'm, we're very strong of our faith, myself, my family, and we believe in the Bible. We believe that we are broken people. We're sinners. We make mistakes. And as, uh, as a human, we're very impulsive. And impulsive behavior is below the line. So, for example, you're hit with a situation. Above the line response is, you know, get your mind right, step, uh, uh, press pause, get your mind right, and step up. Below the line is screw it. Just do it. Just uh, the impulsive decision. Think about how many decisions are made in life that you've made that I've made that have been impulsive. And they usually turn out awful. Yep. Uh, think about all the people that you've coached or maybe employees that you teach that, you know, how many, how many great athletes have I coached that made impulsive decisions and maybe ruined their life? Mm-hmm. I've had several of those uh, and ruined other people's lives. So above the line is with purpose, intentional, which means taught. And you have to really work at it. I'm, I'm in a situation, uh, above the line decision, make it, uh, below the line is default. It's impulsive. And that's when you, I, I love the, the visual of above the line, below the line. When you're, when you're faced with a situation above the line is with intent, with purpose and well thought out, Below the line is impulse. And, uh, we all know which decisions are the best. I always say coaches are some of the greatest leaders that I don't, and I don't want to say don't get enough respect, but I think, uh, you know, I think that's why, you know, I'm glad we we were able to start the podcast off that way, just because uh, having been, you know, little side note, I was at Miami University when you were coaching at Bowling Green. Um, So, uh, yeah, so you didn't have us. Yeah, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have the game plan for me too much. I was on the sideline and we had other guys like Ben Roethlisberger and whatnot. But um, that's kind of that's a commonality that we do have, man. So I've uh, been watching your career for a long time. And I know um, we do want to talk about, you know, some of the just your early life. Um, I, I coached uh, college football for about three years at small D2 school in Indiana um, and got to kind of experience it. And, you know, right now, I think a lot of people, they see Urban Meyer and they see the success, but they don't know that, you know, while you were at UC or even before, I know Kyle maybe even want to touch on this. Um, yeah, here in Cincinnati, we were based out of St. X High School. So Coach Specht. Saw, uh, uh, <laughs> saw the DB coach with the mustache. I love that. So heard, you, was, yeah. heard you, uh, you had to, ri- so I, I saw the story. I heard you ripped your shirt off uh, during a practice once when you were coaching the, coaching the DBs because you wanted to set an example. Do you have any you care to share that story a little bit about it? <laughs> oh, uh, I, I don't want to say it didn't happen because I, <laughs> I was young. I, I was a nut job. But, uh, and I was built that I could tear my shirt off. But, you know, that's 55, all. 56 year old men aren't going to be tearing their shirts off. I can promise you that. So that's great. That's great stuff that Steve Specht is an awesome guy. And uh, I've been very blessed, man. My career, when I look back now, and I think of some of these people I've been around, it's, it's humbling. I'm not just talking about the uh, arguably the best players in the history of college football. I've been able to be around them and coach them. Arguably some of the greatest coaches in the history of our game and the top coaches in the profession right now, a lot of them were on my staff. So uh, really, really, uh, uh, I, I have weaknesses and strengths. My strengths is probably being able to surround myself with elite people. Yeah, and I, I think um, some of the things that you know you learned and what you said in your book is the Earl Bruce and the Lou Holtz, and something that kind of resonated with me. You know, looking at your journey, taking over a two and nine Bowling Green team, and what Lou Holtz had said 
to you. And I think that was because an underdog is what we what we believe is overcoming adversity to sustain uh, success. And I thought that was something you had mentioned, you know, kind of the garden hose at uh, I'm sorry, the fire hose at Bowling Green and then kind of the garden hose at Utah. Oh, and yeah. then in, in kind of go over once again, a lot of people that might not know, you know, the UC from St. X, UC to Illinois State to Colorado State to Bowling Green. Everyone knows, obviously, the the Utah, Ohio State, Florida, as Calvin was saying, I mean, you were ma- not making a lot of money. <laughs> you know, you were a young father. You know, how did you get through those adverse points and, and, and get to where you, you know, you inevitably got to? Yeah, the, like you said, the start was I was uh, – the coaching profession was – you didn't make any money at all. When I first started, you did not get in it. You know, that's where it's changed so much. The, you know, uh, the amount of money the coaches are making is uh, at times you, you just shake your head and think, wow, you know, that's a lot of money. I know it's a very hard job. It's very difficult, high expectations, but there's a lot of hard jobs out there. So uh, when I went look back, when I started coaching, I was making $6,000 a year and then got a giant raise up to $19,000 a year <laughs> at Colorado State. And then I went to Notre Dame for fifty thousand dollars a year and that was you know Notre Dame's the top of the mountain so once again there's you 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 know I have a family of three your wife my Shelly went to uh, get a master's so we had to pay for that and I mean we were I mean that was paycheck to paycheck survival until I went to Bowling Green and I made a hundred thousand dollars as the head football coach at Bowling Green and then uh, then things started moving you start winning and, and then you end up in places like Florida and we won a couple of championships there and then so it just changed and uh, with success, you know, comes a lot of, you know, uh, scrutiny with success comes a lot of high expectation. And it also starts to eat away at you as far as like family. What really got me at Florida was, uh, you know, I was missing so much of my kids stuff. And a, a friend of mine, the head coach at Northwestern, Randy Walker died of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that. And I was actually working out when I found out that happened. And I, you start thinking why, you know, you start getting chest pain. I was getting chest pains and I was just dealing with the stress and the trying to get perfection. And we won two national championships and, and you start thinking, you know what? I want to go enjoy my family. I want to go. I'm missing my kids play. I, I have three excellent athletes, all college athletes turned out to be, and I was missing everything. And that was eating me alive. You know, I was going on a plane to a booster club meeting and I'm, my daughter was a little Tom girl and she's pitching and my wife sent me text messages about, oh, you missed her. She struck out two people. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, when you start asking, why am I doing this question? Like all of us have done, that starts eating away at you. And that was the, and then I, you know, had some health stuff and I stepped away and uh, uh, took a year off and then went to Ohio State. But what got me through is, you know, once again, faith is the cornerstone of everything we do. And then I have, my wife of 31 years that she's my best friend. She were very close. And then I have three wonderful kids, now two grandkids. And without that, I just, I'm non-functional. And uh, uh, so, you, you know, when you have, we, we had adversity at Ohio state a couple years ago, people are, you know, what gets you about a lot of the media, they, they say things that just aren't true, but mm-hmm. you know, there's things out there and you're like, and I try not to read too much, but you know, thrown in your face and you're like, wait a minute, who is saying that? What, they don't, there's plenty of people you can ask who know us and know the story and know the whole background and everything. There's plenty of people, but then there's, I guess, you know, everybody's got to, you know, they got to sell papers and they got to create, you know, create storyline. And, and I, I don't agree with it, but that's the way it is. Uh, can I ask a question? I had, I had to deal with that. 
So you mentioned that transition from Florida to to Ohio State, and I know you had also there was a book I believe Dare to Read uh, is it Dare to Lead um, that you said that was very influential, you know, in you transfer in kind of your transformation. Oh, lead for God's sake! Yeah, I'm sorry, lead for God's sake. Sorry about that. Come and, on, rookie. Right. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so, can you talk about that book as well? Because I guess my question is, when you were at Florida, you know, you said you were you you were a different person. Um, than when you were, when you got to Ohio State. And so with a lot of the controversy or whatnot and things that happened, you know, at, at Ohio State, do you think that book was a factor on the way you may have grown and matured and maybe handled the situation nowadays with, uh, as a, compared to maybe how you would have handled it back at Florida before you had maybe uh, gotten your hands on that book? Yeah, Lead for God's Sakes is a story of a high school coach that uh, got into it for love of players, love of team, and then he had an enormous amount of success, and it kind of got to him. You know, he kind of lost his way a little bit, and, and uh, not in a negative way, but you just, you, instead of focusing on why you do it, uh, and that kind of happened at, at Florida when, uh, when we won that first, I'll never forget, we won the championship in 06, and, and I got it for the love of players, helping people and the building teams. I just, that's been my world. That's all I wanted to do. And we go and I have a great time at Utah or at Bowling Green. Then you start getting these opportunities and then you go to Utah. And then I started thinking to myself, you know what, uh, the way I work, the way I grind, the way I take everything, this is, I'm not in this for, I, I can't do this till I'm 80 years old. I'm going to go as hard as I can. And we're going to try to win a national title. And then you go to Florida and you win one. And I'll never forget after the, we beat Ohio State, ironically, but we're sitting in the deep in the locker room at, you know, two hours after the game when everybody left. And my father and Earl Bruce are sitting with me. And I just look at, at, at both of them. And I said, you know, what's really unbelievable is from this point forward, I'm on house money. You know, I don't, we want it. I'm going to have fun, coach, not care. And that is the most incorrect statement I've ever made because that became the standard. And I've talked to Billy Donovan's and Chesky's about this. and. Mac Browns and Bobby Stoops and other friends of mine. And you're like, once you win that thing, it becomes like an albatross. It's like, that's all that's acceptable. And sure enough, we, you know, we win it again two years later. And then you go 13 and one the next year in 2009. And as I walked to the podium before that season, I said, coach, how's it feel to know that anything other than undefeated and a national title and you and your team are failures. And I wanted to go choke the person. <laughs> and, but that becomes the mindset. And if it's a mindset of me, of the leader, then I saw the wear and tear on Tebow's and the players, and you couldn't even enjoy a win. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it just beats you. We go 13-1, and and we lose to Alabama, or we go undefeated, lose to Alabama, and then win the Sugar Bowl, finish, I think, third in the country. And, you know, it's just like you're, you know, in, in this world, you're a failure because you don't win at all. And, and you know, when you, when you look back now, who cares? You know, that, that we weren't a failure. We had a great team. We lost a game. We moved on, you know, but, but no one held a gun to your head either. I chose that profession. And so that's, that's the way it is. So you, you ask those questions about how do you get through it? I have three things, faith, uh, my family, and then very, uh, you know, we, we, we have a very close circle of friends, not many, you know, just what I consider real, real friends. And uh, that's how we get through it. Yeah. And when you mentioned uh, Randy Walker, he's a former Miami. I played yeah. there as well. And I'm fortunate enough to know Tammy Walker, his wife, and had conversations about, you know, I'm always trying to learn from leaders and, you know, how he handled it. And I know he, uh, you know, she wished he would have handled probably things the way you have, which is really trying to find 
that balance and, uh, you know, been very blessed there. And then we obviously have the late coach Hepner, uh, who, who coached us that went to IU and we lost him as well. So life is short, life is fragile. Um, and I know we were, you know, both know those individuals and, and their families. So, um, definitely God bless to you and your family. I'm glad you're doing well now. Um, and I know in 2009, you mentioned, you know, after the, the championship, one of the stories you had mentioned in the book was, um, going right into your, uh, office right after you beat Oklahoma versus celebrating and just emailing recruits. And it was just, it seemed like that work-life balance, as you mentioned, uh, also potentially missing your, your daughter's signing day, but you got to it. But those were just things, like you said, it just, you didn't have that balance. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. And I, I admire those that do, you know, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes you look at, you know, Nick Saban's a, a coach has won many championships and a friend of mine, and we've had, you know, brief conversations, Bill Belichick's a a dear friend that I've known for a while. And we've had some conversations and, you know, I know Dabo Sweeney real well. And now Ryan Day is doing excellent, but Mm -hmm. those are all concerns of people that, you know, you know, your life, especially when you you have a pandemic, you have something that is just making you, you know, I really believe God hits you on the shoulder. Sometimes it hits you with a bat and he said, okay, now let's start having dinner again with your family. You know, let it, let's, and, and that is, I want to say, almost impossible the way I did things. I was recruiting 24-7. Like you said, we won the championship. We beat Sam Bradford in Oklahoma uh, for the, our second national title. And I remember I just I, I started thinking, get, I went to my assistant, my recruiting, get me my phone. And I went, and they're out there celebrating. I went and closed the door and started hammering all these recruits. And I would, like, get pissed at our coaches that we weren't recruiting that moment. And because that was our chance to, you know, step on everyone's neck and, and let's worry about, you know, that was 08. Let's worry about no nine. And, then, uh, and that's just the way it was. And then the question is, can you do, can you have the success we had without that mentality? You know, you have to ask yourself that. I don't have to, you have to ask Coach Belichick. You have to ask uh, uh, Coach Saban and Sweeney. And, you know, those are questions you have to ask. And I wasn't able to find other, any other, anything other than full speed ahead both feet in, swing as hard and nonstop as you possibly can. And when you, you know, never really take a vacation, never really turn your phone off. And uh, I did, and I loved it. I'm not complaining. I absolutely loved every second of it. I shouldn't say loved every second. I loved it. But then with that comes, you know, the, you know, the media and the, well, you lost a game. I had one guy, we lost a game. I can't remember which game. I don't want to get into which game because, I can't stand those losses anyways, but, and he said to me, he says, you know, coach, uh, there's some people really worried about the direction of the program. It was a first loss, in like 20 games. <laughs> and I, and I just stared at the person. I thought, what is, what are we talking about here? Right. You know, worried about the direction. We have more draft picks where our recruiting is always not you know, one, two or three in America. We won, you know, 22 out of you know, 24 out of 26, whatever it was. And I, I just, you know, is what it is, you know? So yeah. And I think part of the job. Yeah. I think we'd be reminisced as, as we move through this podcast, not to touch upon obviously that special 2014 team. And, um, and there was a lot, the one thing I want to touch upon that I didn't know was the story about Nick Sirock. Cause I was a former walk on at Miami, um, that earned a scholarship and in that story, like I just, once I listened to that, that meant more than anything, you know, us being foreign players with coaches, I think to me, 
how Coach Hepner uh, treated me in the staff, like Dan Dalrymple, who's now with the Saints, been with down there for a while, and everyone who's part of that coaching staff, how they treated walk-ons, where I heard throughout the country wasn't that way, and obviously I've heard great things of how you treat every player. Um, and that, that, that story about Nick Sorok being the hardest worker from St. Ignatius High School just really, really resonated with me. So um, just wanted to, I guess, a personal thank you to, to how you treat your players um, because I know, um, you know, being a walk-on was tough and, 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 you know, I tried to work the hardest I could be. And I was a, 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 f- a field goal holder for, for Miami university. Actually, the first game I played at was at Ohio state, um, back in, I guess I was three or four. Um, but, uh, it was a dream come true. I always wanted to be a Buckeye, but loved my time at Miami, but just really wanted to, the Nick Sorok story. Um, I don't know if you want to touch upon him. Is he a doctor now? I don't, I didn't, was able to follow he sure up. Is. Okay. I still stay in touch with him and his father and, uh, Nick Sirak is one of my favorite guys. Uh, I love walk-ons. I actually walked on Cincinnati. Uh, I would always, if it came down to between a scholarship player and a walk-on, I'd give the job to the walk-on. Um, you know, I just, I really pre- appreciate those selfless kind of people that uh, are doing it for the love of the game. So uh, Nick Sirak was an animal. You know, we could not win without Nick Sirak. He was so good on scout team. He wasn't, you know, good enough to play for Ohio State. And he knew that, but he was such a valuable member in the locker room. And, you know, if kids are going through stuff, he would visit with them. And his, you know, his father was a doctor. And so he earned a scholarship. And I would always give one or two scholarships a year to a walk-on. Um, that was a huge deal for me and our staff. And and so Nick earned it. And so I remember calling Nick in and saying, you know, I'm going to give you a scholarship. I talked to his father and they come back to me. I said, you know, coach, uh, we just love being here and we can afford our school. I want you to give that to someone who really needs it. And I almost fell out of my chair and I said, now, you, you know, there, there's a reason, first of all, why this family is the way they are. There's a reason why this team is the way they were. We won the national, when we won the national title in 14, it was absolutely illogical. That didn't make sense. The, right. the stuff that we had to go through, we had a third string quarterback. Most, most teams don't have a third string quarterback nowadays. Right. And, and to do, uh, to, to do what that team did and the way they did it. Uh, but the term self, when I was, Think of that team, absolutely selfless. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what they were. But that's, you know, common denominator. Obviously, you have to have talent, but there's a lot of talented teams out there. You throw in selfless and great leadership and a great culture, and uh, uh, that's what happened. But that was a great Nick Sirac story, and to this day, we're still close. That's yeah. the definition of brotherhood or and, sisterhood. And I always wondered why the Patriots drafted. I know John Simon was a great player, but after reading, seeing him in every day at 6 a.m., that type of work ethic, it – now it doesn't surprise me how well he's doing with the Patriots and, and uh, or now he's with the Texans. But the uh, yeah, I mean, just that culture um, being on teams. And like you said, you've been coaching great teams and great players. But those um, those uh, those guys that have the it factor and the work ethic, it goes a long way. And after losing to Virginia Tech that 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 year, like you said, going into the season, I think Don't you told touch Shelley. on the losses. <laughs> I know. I know. That. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you think you're telling Shelly like the expectations could be seven and five, eight and three. You know, great year. Maybe you would be, you know, ten and two or whatever. And and so, you know, I think that team, like reading that story, and then all of the overversity, the death, um, everything that you guys faced, is it's just what a story. I think it's one of the coolest college football stories and unique teams of maybe ever. So, really unique. So I wanted to. I want to. Uh, so now that you are, you know, you're not coaching, I'm not going to ask, you know, what your plans are. I know you get asked that enough. Uh, if we want to figure that out, we can just read the media. But my question to you is, I know when you're during the season, uh, you know, you have that 
just very, very structured day. What you know, whether it's you know staff in the morning, and then you know watching film, and then getting ready for practice. And for the few years that I coached, and then now that I'm in the business world, the corporate world, and trying to implement the structure in my day um, of breaking my day down to really having those deep thought moments of really focusing on different tasks at hand. How have you transitioned out of the coaching world? And now that you're kind of in the broadcasting, but obviously probably have a lot more family time. Are, have you implemented, you know, some of that same structure from football into your everyday life now? Yeah. You know, uh, before we get there, I want to, I want to talk, hit on what you just said about the routine or structure and, and solitude is a critical time there. There's a, you guys get a chance, write this down and share this. One of the greatest articles I ever have read. And I made our staff read it every year. And it's called uh, Solitude and Leadership. And it's in the American Scholar. It's uh, 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 Dershowitz, I believe, is the name of the person. And he was addressing West Point. And basically, to paraphrase the, uh, the article, it's all about, you know, people advance nowadays by following the, you know, just following. You know, back, you know, and, and you hate to sound like that old person. Well, back when I was growing up, but you know what? Back when you actually get ridiculed now when you step out on your own, when you make your own, you know, you, you say, well, I, I believe in this. And you're like, well, you're you're a racist. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm not. A, what are you talking about? Or, you know, I I believe in this. Well, no, that's how can you say that? What do you mean? How can I say Because I believe in that. That's what that's, you know, you're stepping out on your own. And it's called core versus concept. And core is Latin for heart. A concept is in your head. So core values and core beliefs are in your heart. And where do you get developed? That's in solitude. That's in your, like you said, on purpose, I, I moved, when I moved to Columbus, I wanted to, I wanted some time. And so I was thinking, I was looking at houses near Ohio State and then about 15, 18 miles away was my house. And I made the drive one day and I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I, I want, I turn the radio off. I turn nothing, but that's 15 minutes I have. That I, nothing, but I get to think about the day, think about, you know, because once I walk in those doors now, I'm not going to, it's chaos until I go home. And so solitude and leadership is a very, you know, what, what is your core? What do you believe? What do you stand at? Because the opposite is concept and concept is driven by what? Narrative, by cell phones, by media, by, um, you know, uh, what sounds right, mob rule, uh, political correctness. That's what's driven. Uh, uh, conceptual values and beliefs because there's stuff going on right now. That's, it's not true. You know, and it's like, I, I watch television. So I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, let's legalize a drug that's been known to, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? You know, that's, that's a subjective truth. That's not an objective truth. That's, that's a, that's a narrative. And, and so you just have to be very cautious. And so, uh, your question to me following that was just transitioning now, which you basically what you oh, just said, of, yeah. yeah, with family now and just how you've maybe yes. even incorporated. So I think routine is very obviously very very important. I had a very set routine, and I had to have my twelve o'clock workout in, or I felt awful. I had to have my six thirty devotional time when I first got to the office every morning, and then the staff meeting was at nine o'clock every day. You know, Wednesday was recruiting, Thursday was player development. So it was very structured, very routine. You know. Uh, as my older sister, who was a associate provost at University of Cincinnati, ironically, you know, we were talking about that. It's a different chapter in our lives. You know, she's she's getting ready to. It's you know, she's been uh, had opportunities maybe to become a president at a university. I remember talking to her about that. You know, can she be okay not 
taking that swing. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm in a different chapter of my life right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have two grandchildren. We have, so it's a much different routine than I've ever had. Uh, that was actually but, one of our rapid fire questions is, uh, how does it feel to be a grandpa and what do they call you? <laughs> <laughs> well, they call me buddy and it's one of the greatest thing, you know, God knew what he was doing. He made grandkids now that it's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I know that's, that's, uh, I just had, I have a four and a one and, and Calvin has two four, as well. Yeah, four, so. four and almost three. Our parents are very happy. Yeah. <laughs> they love to be grandparents because they sh- fill them up with sugar as always and send them right back with us. So. <laughs> um, well, we really appreciate it. Um, uh, we did have a few. We end up usually in a rapid fire, so we'll try to be f- as brief as time, possible. Do you have time for those? It's sure. only three or four sure. questions. Okay. Um, I figured some of these are, are kind of funny here. So uh, assuming Shelly's a better cook than you, who is a better cook, you or your son, Nate? Oh, I'm a, he's pretty good though. I, I'm, you give me, you give me a grill and, uh, or a green egg and, uh, salmon and, and tenderloin and all that. I, I might be one of the better ones out there. Okay. All Other right. than that, not good. All right. all right. Speaking off of food, uh, your favorite quarantine snack. Quarantine. Well, I love cheese crackers, triscuits, uh, uh, raspberry raisins or whatever they'll call those things. Cranberry raisins or whatever they're called almonds and cheese and an apple that's it that's the best i need to get on his health diet halfway healthy too yeah you need a lot more than his dad bod needs some yeah some work there um what is your uh we just talked about this kind of but what is your current morning routine oh i get up and i do a devotional time um what time do you get up six six thirty i'll get up and then uh you know things get going around here we usually go shelly and i will either go work out somewhere, go for a walk somewhere. Um, and then I have, uh, usually I read, uh, as much news as I possibly can get my hands on. And then, uh, I have podcasts. I have, uh, I'm teaching a class at Ohio state. I'm on conference calls cause I'm on two corporate boards. Uh, so I just kind of fill the day with what's what I have going. And then, uh, Fox television it occupies a lot of the time in the fall. Absolutely. Uh, most recent book you've read and why? I'm reading one right now. It's incredible. It's called Finish Strong, and it's about Nate Ebner, the walk-on, former walk-on, now New England Patriot. Uh, it's not out yet. I, they're asking me to write a preface for it, and so I've been reading it, and it's just a, incredible. Someday that's going to come out here very soon, uh, but Finish Strong, uh, Nate Ebner story. Okay. It's incredible. Yeah, we'll definitely have to uh, check that one out. Uh, next Tuesday, we have uh, Cincinnati head football coach Luke Fickle. What question should we ask him? <laughs> Put him on the hot seat. Oh, I love Luke. Oh, let's see. Say, uh, are you done having twins? <laughs> <laughs> you got two sets of twins, and uh, the second one wasn't planned. And he was actually, I mean, he's going to be like 80 years old, and he's going to have still young kids. Yeah, I went to. Uh, but him and Amy, him and Amy are incredible. Yeah, it's great. I went over to uh, an event, a uh, small one of his friends who we're mutual friends with, and it was him and Marcus Freeman. And they both have like six kids, and I have my son, and then the guy that we were with, Bill, he has like four. And so there was four adults, four of us guys, and there was twenty four kids, or, or like twenty <laughs> kids. It was crazy. I don't. I, I asked. So you can Luke, ask him the story here. When we we got on a big plane to go to Washington D.C. to meet President Obama after we won the national championship in two thousand and fourteen, and I remember walking on the plane. And turning right, 
and basically the whole row was taken up by fickles. <laughs> and I looked at Luke and Amy and I said, hey, enough's enough, man. I, mean, I don't know how they do it. No I don't more. know how the fickles and the Freemans do it, to be honest with you. Yeah, Mark. I'm, yeah. It's 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 incredible. Um yeah, I have two and I'm you know, I'm trying to figure out how I have more. I'm good. Um you know, being from uh, Northern Ohio, me growing up as a Browns fan, are you a Cleveland Browns fan still? I know you sure work for all your players, but who would you, who'd you, uh, who, who's your NFL team of choice? I love the Browns and Bengals. You know, I kind of grew up in Cincinnati for the first five years, then Cleveland after that. But I love the Browns, still love the Browns, love the Bengals, pull for them, um, just get crushed when they're terrible. And, and uh, yeah. you know, this Joe Burrow thing is going to be very intriguing. He could be a difference maker, but. Uh, and I, I love the Browns. I, I've, I grew up going to Municipal Stadium right on the water. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so I love the Browns and Bengals. Great. And so uh, as we finish this podcast, I think uh, similar to what you said, I think in pregame and postgame with your national championship versus Oregon, uh, Calvin, do you realize what we've just done? <laughs> I think we just interviewed the greatest coach of all time, my man. There we go. <laughs> so um, we, we found that nice in, in your, uh, your pregame speech. And after, I thought that was, once again, Thank you for uh, just being a great leader across this, this really this planet, but especially here in Ohio, being such a brand ambassador and coming on to a small podcast like this. Um, and then uh, just really means a lot. So really appreciate you always communicating and in uh, everything that you're doing. I look forward to seeing you getting down in the UC and I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks coach. coach. Appreciate Thank it. you, man. Thanks for listening to the underdog podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google podcast apps and send our Twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at underdog pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the U D P.